Billy McFarlane. Kevin, what's going on? Very excited for you to be here. First ever podcast out of the pirate office. So let's have some fun. Yeah, thanks for having us. So you got out of prison, you said seven months ago? Yeah, August 30th. So just hit that seventh month mark. And I kind of had this expectation that the day I would get out, like the whole world would come running to me. It yeah. Pretty much the complete opposite. So it's been a fucking battle, just like being able to keep my head above water for the first seven months. Yeah. Well, I saw you did the Nelf Boys podcast. Yep. That's got to be getting a lot of traction. And um, that's really good. You were on Pierce Morgan and all these big shows. So it's so crazy about Nelk. It's like did the four or five bigger mainstream media talk shows. And all of those combined were a small fraction of the response that the Nelk podcast got. It's like yep. wild to see. Like I missed this whole like podcast craze like over the past four years. Yeah. YouTubers just took over these multi-billion dollar media industries and just like so cool and wild. Yeah. I heard Mr. Beast talking about like people don't <clears throat> get it. They want to do YouTube to get them into like getting a Netflix gig yep. or getting into movies. And he's like, you don't get it. It's mm -hmm. YouTube. Like that is what it is. Yeah. This is the new medium. Yeah. And like this is where the value is and just so much better. A hundred percent. And that's why I'm going so hard on the podcast and I'm committed like stroke because we're not making money with this yet. We're actually mm -hmm. hemorrhaging money, but I know that, yeah. you know, with some guests like yourself and mm -hmm. uh, whoever else it's going to keep growing and that's the future. So one thing I think is really interesting is like everybody wants the audience where they don't have it. There are a lot of people who I didn't know of before, but I come out now and see like they have, you know, five, six, seven million followers on socials and in their social bio, they're promoting this like one time they're on Netflix for like 10 seconds. Yeah. And like a guy like me was on Netflix for, for a while and I'm doing another show and have like no social followers. Like I think the social following is, is cooler. So yeah, just funny how people like, just like want what they don't have. Yeah, for sure. Don't know. I don't know how to be grateful, I guess, for the audience where they have it. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's yeah. talk about Firefest. And um, I want to hear your perspective on how the Fire Festival, everything kind of crashed and, sure. and happened how it happened. I think the craziest thing was it was a four month run up. And after like being an entrepreneur for six, seven, eight years running venture funded companies and all like the good and bad and wild stories that come with it, all the focus was on this four month period. Yeah. It's like such a short amount of time, but looking back, it was like, holy shit, so much happened in just four months as well. Yeah. And what did you do before Fire Festival? Because obviously that's mm -hmm. what everybody knows you for, but what was your past like? I guess my <clears throat> bigger company in terms of revenue wise was a company called Magnesis. And I built or was trying to build like a black card targeted towards urban millennials. And like the revenue there was far, far higher than anything the Fire app like came close to. Yeah. And, you know, unfortunately the Fire Festival <laughs> took it all down. <laughs> So from your perspective, what was that like? I mean, how, where did it start? How did it end for you? To give me kind of your perspective on what happened. So like as any other entrepreneur, I kind of realized I had one hack that was like able to get into the worlds of different people and bring them together. And I always felt like I was good at finding something that people didn't have and giving them access to it. And Magnesis is like a really good example. And I did two things. Like one, I gave your average 25 year old a black card when he or she like was not at that level of their career and they could afford it. And in addition to the card, I just rented this crazy space in downtown Manhattan. So now like you have this black card and you have access, 24 seven access, to this like multi-million dollar Soho loft. And as a 25 year old in like your second or third year of your career, you just can't get that without me. And yeah. like that worked really well and built a pretty large business. So with fire, my concept was I was working with a lot of like B-list rap talent to book them for concerts. Yeah. I'm like they all want to be like Jay-Z, right? Like what do these guys not have? Right. Oh, a private island. It's like, let's get an island and start bringing them there. 
and building this business faster than you should be able to do. Right. And that's like kicked off the whole fire wild times. Now, what exactly was the app? Mm-hmm. So it was basically trying to be like an Airbnb or Uber for entertainers where anybody could contact an artist, like a comedian, an entrepreneur, just like to book them for some kind of concert or talk or performance. Right. So trying to like take the ambiguity and like middlemen out of like the entertainment world. Got it. Okay. So what was it like when you showed up to the island? So first it was supposed to be Pablo Escobar's island. And then you guys had to switch that because of that teaser video. Yes. We'd been taking people to this island for three years through Magnesis. Like, literally launched a small airline called Magnesis Air. Wow. And we're just like running these regular trips to the Bahamas. And I just absolutely love the, the unexplored outer islands. There may have been like five or six people who actually live there, like fly our little planes over, like wake them up so they come pick us up when we land. Like really, really cool, like raw experience. And then the Magnesis trips progressed to bringing the artists that we were trying to sign to fire. And that led to a really, really quick accelerated window of getting some of the world's biggest talent down there and then dropping a trailer for the fire festival without really knowing what we were doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, entrepreneurship a lot of times is jumping out of a plane and building a parachute on the way down. Yep, right. For but sure. in this case it didn't work. Mm-hmm. So question, how did you get connected with Ja Rule? Did yeah. you know him before that or? So I, I had booked close to two dozen like music artists for small concerts for Magnesis members. And he was one of the artists that we booked for one of those concerts. And I just been so frustrated by like <clears throat> all the middlemen that I had to go through and all like all these people like lying to me and like giving me fake prices to get to the talent. Yeah. And like, I finally said like tech needs to make this more transparent and like, let's go build this app to do it. And Got it. Just like all started like literally at this Magnesis concert. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. So when you landed on the Island, like how, how long were you on the Island before everything happened? So I think the Magnesis trip started maybe three or four years before the fire trips came to be. Yep. Um, and we'd run them like throughout the fall and the winter and then like didn't go in the spring and summer. Yeah. So on the first trip in the fall of 2016, it was like early September, I took the first talent there. Like I literally had one of my high school buddies who was basically like showing off to, and he said like, hey man, you should totally do a music festival here for all your Magnesis members. And that was the genesis of fire festival it was like simply an old friend saying do this for your magnesis friends who really want to have a music festival right and it just kept growing or or what it what happened because i mean it turned into this huge thing that everybody knows so i think this is like prime coachella years in terms of like social capital that coachella had yeah and they were really hitting the female like influencer marketing really hard Mm -hmm. and it's like not knowing anything about executing music festival i'm like all right i just need the 10 biggest female stars to promote it right i already have like one of the most beautiful islands in the world i have like the best experiences here so if we have the biggest female talent we will have the best music festival of all time so yeah went and essentially called like the head of the top three or four model agencies and they literally laughed me off the phone and like within a few weeks i was like bringing lower tier talent and like the word getting around about it's like the wild life defining experience that were happening on the island. Right. The same agents called back. It's like, Hey, my entire roster wants to go. So we went from like no one coming to dropping a trailer in December with, you know, 10 to 12 of the biggest supermodels in the world and just going completely wild. And you didn't, you weren't sure if it was going to work, right? Like the trailer, I heard you say it was like, well, let's see if it worked. And then it kind of yeah, did. I had no idea if it was going to work. And we obviously had like the orange tile marketing campaign. Yeah. We had 400 people like lined up to post and, Right. We promised most of them tickets in exchange for posting, so we didn't really know if anybody was going to care. Yeah. And they all posted the tiles, like, on time, which is kind of crazy. And, like, nothing happened for a few hours. And I remember 
we brought down like that weekend we had 15 to 20 of like the talent on the island right and the idea was like hey like they're going to be here we're all going to post a tile and then everybody else will follow them so it's like yeah I pull out a chalkboard I'm like all right girls like so you're going to post like all right ready set go and we posted just like nothing happened and i was so depressed I'm like fuck this completely failed i basically like passed out on the beach and went to bed yeah and woke up in the morning so you were already there you were already on the island i was on the island for the announcement got it okay and I just like woke up in the morning with everybody running around frantically. It's like, Billy, we have a problem. I'm like, what? Like we sold thousands of tickets. Like how the fuck are we going to do this? Oh man. So it was kind of weird to see the delay. <clears throat> I think it'd take a couple hours for it to really like resonate and hit. And our marketing was purposefully vague, right? Mm-hmm. You would see the orange tile, but <clears throat> sorry, you're good. <clears throat> there was no fire like word or like logo it was like simply all these like weird people who don't seem to know each other yeah there's like a a football player or a comedian or a model all posting at the same time so other people started sharing it right and then it started sharing it wildfire no one really knew what it was at first like why is my feed all orange right and i was depressed because i felt like it missed but the reality was it like took a couple hours to resonate so i was like passed out in bed i guess when the whole world was figuring out oh shit this is actually a crazy music festival and I woke up and the rest is history. Man, so how did that feel when you woke up and it was, I mean, things completely changed? Because I know what it's like to mm-hmm. be an entrepreneur when something fails. Yep. It's <clears throat> such a sinking feeling. But yep. when that turns around, especially when you don't expect it to, it's like a, a, an endorphin rush like nothing else. Yeah, it was like a really weird entrepreneur's high that I think yeah. like you can only get from suffering so many times first. Yeah. And then when you have that win as an entrepreneur, you just like feel like you're on top of the world. Yeah. And like it lasts for six hours and you feel like a fucking king. Yeah. It's like, oh shit. Now we got to do this. How the hell are we going to pull this off? Yeah. And the biggest mistake at that time was promising in the video an April festival. Yeah. So it was literally a four month turnaround to build the impossible. Right. So where did things start to go wrong? I mean, that you must have felt pretty optimistic, like, mm-hmm. hey, we did this. Now we can get the rest of it done. But yeah. in between <clears throat> now and then, something failed. So where did it start to unravel for you and for, I mean, everything, right? So the island that we shot all of the promotional videos on that we've been using for years for all of these trips was one of the main islands that like Escobar's crew used to smuggle drugs like back in the late 80s. Yeah. And we thought that story was incredible. Like the island is featured in the movie Below where like Johnny Depp plays like one of the famous drug dealers caught up in Escobar's web and, you know, had a lot of like pirate Escobar-esque history to it. And we obviously used that in our promotional video, like thinking it added color to the event. But the owners of the island, who we basically had a preliminary deal with to actually do a festival there, saw the video and just like went crazy. And had a cease and desist like within a week of the video coming out, basically saying like, if you land here again, you're fucked. So they said something about they don't want Pablo Escobar mentioned, right? I think it was a little unclear before the video came out. Like certainly in our meetings with them, they were not proud or like wanting to market the history of the island. Yeah. They were like older, you know, guy, older foreign guys who had a dream of selling like super high-end villas. Yeah. They weren't trying to target the 25-year-old demographic. Right. Who thought it was kind of cool to have like a pirate history to the island yeah so as soon as we launched it like they just came and squashed your plans essentially and then we had a big follow-up trip scheduled i remember being like in the fbo in miami like waiting to get in the jet to the bahamas yeah i got the cease and desist like you you just can't land here so what'd you do then what was your what was your plan i mean figure it out yeah started calling frantically to everybody and anybody like in the area who had an island right and it's like started bouncing around islands trying to find the right one but it's like couldn't find one that was like as magical as the original. Yeah. And that was part of the problem. It's like didn't move fast enough. And like 
kept thinking the islands weren't good enough and just like couldn't really find a home. Damn. So you said, I heard something where you had like a Navy SEAL going around basically house to house sending people on vacations if you yeah. guys could use the island. Right? Yes. Yeah, so we, we eventually found an island that we used. Like this is now late, late February, maybe. So we literally have two months left. Wow. So find an island, do a deal with um, a landowner who actually owned like a great part of the island, whatever. Deal is done. All right. We have 60 days to pull this off. Yeah. And we needed housing. So like literally spent a million dollars on tents. Yeah. From some company in Miami and put up like seven or 800, like these white dome tents, which everybody's seen. And then we needed more villas. So we hired this like Navy SEAL to do like a street team. Yeah. And we divided up teams, created like a massive map of that island and all the other islands in the area. And they literally went and knocked on doors, like with cash and cameras. It's like, all right, Damn. listen, like, we'll send you guys on vacation for two weeks. Here's some money. Here's a contract. Can we take pictures so we can like know what we're, we're getting ourselves into? Yeah. And mapped out and rented, I think, close to 200 villas. Which wow. Wild. Yeah. yeah. So when people started showing up, yeah. uh, what was it like kind of watching people show up and then it sort of, you know, the expectation didn't meet reality? I think my management ability at the time was just so poor. And the day of the event, we had close to 800 people who were working in the festival. Yeah. And a lot of them were like contractors who were brought on specifically for the event, but like had 800 people who were being paid to make this thing happen. I just didn't have the structure or foundation in place to manage them. Right. I like, I was having so much fun and kind of caught up in my own, you know, lost in the sauce a little bit type yeah. thing. So like the core eight to 10 people around me, of them, the majority were not really competent and they were there because like they were more enablers of fun rather than people who were actually capable of executing a large scale event. Right. And so I just remember standing there with all the chaos happening. And my only thought was like, where the fuck is everybody? Right. And I remember the two or three people that were still there, like next to me, whose job descriptions might not have been that senior, who were actually trying to figure things out. And like, I'll never forget them. But everybody else like, where the fuck did they go? And mm -hmm. that was 90% because of like my bad management skills and like 10% because they just like quit. Right. And they're yeah. just soft kids. So right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. Like a mix of both. And you were how old when this happened? 25? I was 25 at this point. Yeah. So, I mean being 25 and in control of that much is crazy, yeah. right? Like when you really think about it, that's a, a big weight on the shoulders. And also mm -hmm. that's a lot of money to have and not want to kind of splurge a little sure. bit. So when people started showing up to the Island and then, uh, so what happened from your perspective of their perspective, right? Like they paid yeah. this money for these tickets. They saw this campaign, they show up and then what? I think what's just so crazy is I set a level that was impossible to reach. Yeah. And I think like marketing one-on-one is like, don't do that. Yeah. Right. Cause you're advertising a seven star like experience. It's never going to be good enough. Like if you're not spritzing them at exactly the right time, like they're going to be pissed if that's what you're selling. Right. And I think it all would have worked if we had marketed as like, Hey guys, this is this beautiful Island and it's beautiful because it's so raw and you're going to leave your great apartments in like New York and Miami and LA. And you're going to come somewhere where very few people ever have been. And you're going to be here with like super interesting people and it's going like to push the boundaries like what you thought was possible. Right. Now that would be a great experience. They're yeah. You get there, they anticipate it. You have like fun activities and everybody loves it. But when you sell this like perfect pampered experience, it is just like nearly impossible to ever deliver that, especially to a younger group who hasn't really seen enough to understand like what is and isn't possible from like a luxury hospitality perspective. So I think like the marketing that made it work initially also took it down at the end. Right. Now, how much money did you have control of during this time? Like you guys raised and were just raising money, 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 right? Yeah, I think we spent close to, putting everything going on, close to 40 million in like 
four to six months. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. Shit of money. Yeah, yeah. And then you'd run out of money and yeah. I, I've heard you say, you know, shit, we got to get another, you know, $4 million by 2 PM. Exactly. Yeah. How did that feel? I mean, you were just Doing calling up everybody you knew or. It's like life was really bad at this point And I was so, I was so like locked in and basically inexperienced. I didn't know how to zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Yeah. And I had zero financial planning. It's like, all right, I'm in so deep that I will do whatever it takes to figure this out. And if I need 700 tenths and you tell me it's going to be X dollars, right. Like, all right. Sure. Can you get them there tomorrow? You mm-hmm. say yes. Like then I'm locked in. Like I might have no money in the account, owe you a million bucks. And now like I got to pay you by tonight. Yeah. So every day we have this like Google sheet. We call it the daily urgent payment sheet. Yeah. Every day I'd wake up and have one person. All he did was like take the vendor invoices and rank them by like how pissed they were. And then like, it's like, all right, I mean it. These are super, super urgent. Like these are like deathly urgent. And like, there was never anything that was okay. It was always some like variation of the word urgent on on the payment status. And like, I'd have until the bank closed to get our wires like in and out. So it's like, all right, money's got to come in by two so we can wire it out by four every day. And some days it was a hundred grand and some days it was like $5 million. It's like, it was never a day where I woke up and had enough money in the account in the morning that I needed for the rest of the day. Yeah. So never like, oh, I can relax. Like, yeah. never was financially stable, not well, even for 12 hours. Didn't a guy end up having to give a blowjob for something? What, what was that about? I actually saw him for the first time in years, like maybe three or four weeks ago. No way. He camped in New York. So, no way. Uh, I think we're going to cook some cheese sandwiches for charity. Oh, that would be. Like, just that do would like be, a cheese sandwich yeah. pop-up. Like, once the weather gets nice in a yeah. couple weeks, like shut down a block in the East Village and do it. So, that's that's cool. I think so, that'd be sweet. so what happened with that? What? So this, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I'm in jail when the documentaries come out, right? Yeah. And I just oh, like, you were already in jail. I was already then. in jail. Yeah. And I just like don't know what's happening. Uh, I haven't seen them in jail. I'm seeing all these people pop up on like TMZ and the daytime TV, and eight out of the ten people who are like showing up, I had never met in my life. And yeah. It's like oh, I was ahead of marketing. I was ahead of this, and like I swear I've never seen these people. And this like guard pulls me over. It's kind of like a sneaky guard, always trying to get me in trouble, but like pretending to be my friend. Yeah. Goes hey McFarland, so uh. You made a guy blow a government official, huh? I'm like, wait, what? And I was so confused. Like, oh, you can tell me it's over now. Just like, just admit it to me. Like looking at him, I had no idea what he was talking about. And then like, you know, in the next like three hours, just like heard from the whole world that I supposedly ordered someone to go suck some guy's dick. That's so, funny. Yeah. I truly don't know what happened there. That was uh, such a meme like, for that whole time. I mean, that was like probably the meme of that year. So when I saw him in person, I asked him like on camera, like what actually happened? And what he said, and this is this is news to me too. He goes, someone called me saying that you told them to tell me to go suck this guy's dick to get this water. I'm like, so I was like, I don't, I don't hey, really know. Hey, we got the water. Yeah, we got, we got the water. I don't think he sucked anybody's dick, and we certainly didn't pay the guy, and we got our water. That's hilarious. Yeah. So okay, um, so everything fell apart, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we all saw what was in the documentary. We'll roll some clips and stuff just to cool. bring people's memory back. But after that, right, when when this all ended, how long did it take from the festival ending, everything ending, to you actually getting arrested? It was super quick. Um, so the festival was scheduled from Friday through Sunday. But the first guests started arriving at sunrise Thursday morning just to give us enough time to basically get planes in and out of the island. So I got the, we canceled the festival like late Thursday night. Everybody got off Friday. And I stuck around until Sunday. I landed back in New York at like midnight on Sunday night. And at 5 a.m., the FBI was at my door. Damn. So it was pretty fucking quick. Yeah. So was it the investors that got them involved? Yeah, I I think the investors basically, the investors reported it really quickly. And then like they showed up. I think at the time, the thought process was I stole all the money and the festival is never real. Right. 
obviously the investors who were involved day to day didn't think that, but some of the the outside investors who came out at the end thought like, oh, he just stole X millions of dollars and the whole festival is fake. Right. So I think the initial investigation was like, wait, this is a fake festival. Yeah. And that quickly turned to, oh, he lied to investors to get the money, which right. was generally true. And I was guilty of that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what were the, I mean, how did you feel when you were lying to these investors, mm-hmm. right? Like, and did you know that you were lying to them or was it the game of, I'm going to say this and then I'm going to figure it out? So it was totally wrong. And I think like looking back now, the part that I feel guilty most about were the people who had backed me for five or six years first. Yeah. And forget about the money. Like I had relationships that once I was like stripped of everything in jail, like the loss of those relationships were the hardest to emotionally handle. Yeah. In prison, like money is pretty irrelevant, like beyond a couple hundred dollars a month, like you don't need any money in there. Yep. And when it's like, hey, I'd love to have a 15 minute phone call with that person right now, like forget about how much money they do or don't have or invest or didn't invest. And I couldn't do that. Then I like really realized like the moral gravity of the crimes. Yeah. And like, yes, I was totally wrong to the guy that came in two days before and invested and I lied to like, I will never do that again. Like it's totally fucked up and deserve to go to jail for that. But I think that the one that really eats at my soul are the people who I knew for a long period of time. Yeah, for sure. So 26 million, is it? Yes. So that was the the amount that I was charged with basically lying to get. So you have to pay that back? Yes. So it's a process. Uh, Yeah. I've made like 17 payments now since August 30th. So like averaging what, like once every three-ish weeks and literally go to the courthouse and make a payment. That's good. I mean, it's it's a burden. Yeah. It's like super, super important for me. Good. Yeah. I mean, and I think that 26 million really in the entrepreneurial world is not like an impossible feat, mm-hmm. you know, you could build up pirate, which we'll talk yep. about, uh, in a little bit, but you have this new venture, you could build that, sell it. And I mean, this could maybe be the best thing that ever happened yeah. to you. So I think people don't realize is you can't make $26 million, you know, making 50 grand a year, right. <laughs> and paying X percent on that. Right. And there's like this weird thing where every time I'm trying to like work or launch a project, the number one criticism I get is how can you be allowed to work? Why you still owe all of this money? Right. Unfortunately, How are you going to make yeah, the money? Unfortunately, I don't have the twenty-six million dollars under my mattress. Like, if, yeah. I, if I did, I would pay it back. Right. And I need to go and basically build a large, impactful business to have any chance at paying back a decent percentage of that. So I wish like people would encourage me to work more and not work less. I yeah. Feel like that's kind of an oxymoron. Well, people are going to say whatever they're going to say. I just hope that you genuinely care and that you mm-hmm. do pay that back, and that you can turn this around and you're. I mean, you have so much time, you yep. know, it's, it's good. So, so once you were charged, you were f- facing what, 20 years or something like that originally. And then, you know, you guys worked it through in the court case. So, Like there's the statue of wire fraud. It has a lot of leeway. I think a wire fraud charge can be anywhere from zero to 20 years. Wow. And there's like a lot of factors that can determine like how long that sentence is. Yeah. The biggest factor is generally like, what's the dollar amount that was lost? Yeah. And there are additional factors after that that can change it. So if your wire fraud is $10,000, you're not going to jail for 20 years. If right. it's $5 billion, you're probably going to jail for 20 years. Yeah. So like, Bernie Madoff. Yeah, there you go. So it's like the, the dollar amount that's the technical loss generally determines like where on that scale the uh, sentence falls. Got it. Okay. So how did that feel not knowing exactly what you're... Because you don't know until you get sentenced, right? Yeah. So that was probably the toughest time I was on bail for almost a year. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think exactly a year actually. 
I just like didn't know what was going to happen. Right. And like they kept investigating and kept investigating and kept investigating. And I knew that I was guilty and I knew that it was black and white, but yeah. the unknown was the hardest part. Yeah. And I had equally smart people telling me, Oh, it's going to be one year. And some saying it's going to be 10 years. So it's yeah. like really, really scary. And when I was living like day by day, literally for so long in my life, trying to come to terms with 10 years at 25, 26 years old. Was yeah. Like really, really hard. Yeah. I have been there actually. Yeah. So I got sober when I was 23. Okay. And I had a bunch, I fought with a bunch of cops and yeah. uh, yeah. So that's actually, I, I haven't drank since then. So I turned my life around at 23. Nice. And, but when I was in that case for about a year while I was on pretrial probation, yeah. um, they were telling me it could be up to 40 years. And that's pretty crazy when you're wow. that young. And when you're that young, you feel invincible, yeah. right? Like you feel like nothing's going to happen, mm -hmm. you know, and then something does and it's like, fuck, you, you know, you don't know what it's like to fail until you really fail, especially like when you're young and naive, it's just it's wild. So you get sentenced to five years, you spend a little less than four, right? Three. So I actually sentenced to six years okay. and uh, served just over four. So I, I went in in 2018 and got out at the end of August, 2018 of this year. Got it. 2022. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how'd that feel first day in? It just <clears throat> felt like it was never going to end. And I just couldn't get my head around six years. And I think there was a large part of that where I truly believed it was never going to end. Right. And if you had told me, oh, this is going to, you know, you'll be out of here in like August of 2022, I would not have believed you. Yeah. I think that was the toughest part. And I just kept getting in trouble in jail and not really coming to terms with how to handle being in forced timeout. Yeah. And I had this like entrepreneur mentality where it's like, I caused all the good that happened in my life, but I also caused all the problems. Mm -hmm. So the only person that can fix this is me. Yeah. And that is totally wrong. Like when you are in prison, you can't fix shit. And the only thing yeah. you can fix is like yourself by sitting down, shutting up and trying to be there in the long term for the ones who really care about you. Yeah. And I just didn't, didn't understand that. And as an entrepreneur, I know for me, I never liked authority. I never liked mm -hmm. being forced to go to school. I liked to learn, but I didn't like to be told what to do. So I can imagine, especially when you're in your early 20s, mid 20s, that's a big deal because you're used to going out and making shit happen in mm -hmm. the world. And now you cannot do anything but sit and think and try to stay alive. I think what's interesting is like entrepreneurs back, at least in like the early 2010 era, we're celebrated by creating your own reality, right? Like you had to create your own force field of what you believe to be true. Right. Then you have to go and make that true. And that's all the best entrepreneurs acted. Yeah. When you get in prison, like the reality is it's generally bad people guarding bad people. Yeah. And with like rules that may seem silly to someone who hasn't been through the experience before. Yeah. And it's like, it's really fucking hard to understand like why this person is telling me to do this when I don't believe in it. And when you're 25 and you're like a hard headed kind of an idiot, like, who's had his whole life where he's created his own path. It's like, it's hard to, to mold into that system. So how did the depression, I mean, you must've been severely depressed, yeah. right? I mean, how did that, how did that feel when you went in there? I think in a weird way, the friendships in jail, like helped a lot. And then you'd come to like really know and care about someone and then realize they have it so much worse. Yeah. Like, okay. Like I'm sentenced to six years. This person is sentenced to 30 years and, like I know they're, they're, they're a better person than I am. And they have like five times as long as me. And yep. they were the relationships like that when I truly got to know people and it's like, saw how tough they have it. And it's like, shit, when this person gets out after 30 years, what are they going to do? Like they are here because they didn't have opportunity before. 
And now in 30 years, their friends are dead, their family's dead. Like, how are they supposed to have opportunity then? Yeah. And you're just like really seeing that and feeling for those guys helped at least like give me hope and like motivation at some of the harder times. When you first went in, did you ever think of suicide? Never thought of suicide. I think like definitely thought of giving up in terms of like trying to do something yeah. ever, ever again. And I think like my extreme emotion rather than like suicide or anything else was more like, hey, I'm just never getting out of here. Right. And that was my like mentality. Well, a lot of people, and for those of you that haven't been, because I've been in jail a bunch, mm -hmm. not prison, but mm -hmm. jail. But I know that a lot of people will go in for a year. They'll get caught with a gun. They go in for a year. They're not a bad dude. But now they're in prison, especially in California. They're in prison, and now they get forced to go do something by a gang. Mm -hmm. Now they stab somebody. That person dies. And then they end up, through a series of events, getting life in prison over yeah. a year, over a gun yeah. charge. So it's just kind of scary to think about that when there's so many unknowns and you see this happening to people. I mean, were you in federal prison? Or? Federal, yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's you saw stories like that. There was one. Uh, there was an Indian guy who was not in America for long. Who was a doctor. He yeah. Was charged for a financial crime, and he ended up hurting somebody and got a lot of years added to his sentence. Like Fuck. you do see the horror stories like that, and it certainly it is. It's like we just don't know. It's scary. Yeah. Now, what's the craziest stuff that you saw in prison? I mean, anything? It is being in solitary for yeah. a long period of time. I did 10 months total. Uh, one was seven months straight. And that was yeah. just like really, really scary. And I think it's like you can't really see other people, but you can hear them like mm -hmm. beyond the metal doors and just like hearing them go crazy. Yeah, literally. Like literally go crazy. Like that was scary. Yeah. And they'd start like singing songs that just made zero sense. Yeah. And, like screaming out these groups of words that just like didn't make any sense. Yeah. And that really was hard to deal with. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, to be locked in a place with no natural light, no interaction, you get a couple meals a day. Yeah. And the only time you see somebody is when that tray opens up, exactly. that little slot in the door opens up, yeah. food comes in. And, um, yeah, man, that's, like, I mean, I, literally fed like dogs. Like they open up like a little doggy tray and slide it in and, seeing the excitement of grown men from these like little trays being like slid through your door was just like that was tough yeah it's crazy to go from what it was before to what it was after and i hope yeah. that that sort of forms you into somebody that can make an impact mm -hmm. and now i mean i think that we're all here on earth to learn yeah. something and evolve as spiritual beings as mm -hmm. corny as that sounds i yeah. do think that so i think that if you have the perspective of everything happens for a reason and somebody, like you said, always has it worse than you, you can find a way to make any situation really good. I mean, there were people that had smiles on their faces in the Holocaust yeah. and that's hard to think of, you know? I think one important note here is when everybody is stripped of everything, you realize how impactful your actions are because if you do something really small for someone, it like truly can impact their life at that period of time. Yeah. And like, that was really wild to me. It's like, we all have nothing. And you do like a deed that is completely irrelevant on a day-to-day -day basis outside of that situation. And that like completely changes the mentality of, right. his, of another like, human being. You start to realize like the gravity of your actions on, on every scale. Yeah. On a big scale and a small yeah. scale, like just, I mean, you never know, right? You see people who uh, have a negative interaction with somebody and it looks like an isolated incident, but mm -hmm. what you don't realize is that guy that yelled at the girl for cutting him off. Well, she's already having a bad day cause she just found out she has cancer and she goes off and now she's even in a worse mood and she yells at somebody else. And this impacts, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a butterfly effect, mm -hmm. right? 
Now, it's the same thing in a good way too. So when you go out and you do something good for somebody, yes. that spreads like fire. Yeah. So I think that that's really good. And, you know, again, like I, I'm, I'm rooting for you yeah, genuinely. You. Yeah, I really am. And, um, you know, hoping that everybody gets their money back and yeah. that this will be, you know, you'll go off and make billions of dollars. Yeah, let's go. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, um, so when you got out of jail, mm-hmm. which is pretty recent, yep. you know, what was that like hitting the streets and, and how did that feel also coming out of jail for that long, you sort of get acclimated and then all of a sudden you're back in the real world. Yeah. I, I think like when you're in jail, you're just like always dreaming. And I think I've been a compulsive like dreamer my whole life. Yeah. And what allowed me to do, but also get in trouble at a higher level, I think than most was I would always act on those dreams. Yeah. <laughs> and like, obviously that, that landed in, in jail and a lot of really, really bad decisions. So in jail, I think I came up with a, a game plan for everything I wanted to do and build as soon as I got out. Yeah. And I felt like all of the pieces would be in place for me to start executing that game plan like the second I walked out of jail. Right. I felt like all the venture firms would be there, like all the best operators would be there. And the reality was like people wouldn't touch me for a period of time. And it's like taken a while to actually like get up to bat and have real opportunities. Right. And I just didn't anticipate like the struggle it would take to even get on base to start with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your reputation is, is demolished, right? Like Mm -hmm. people don't want to buy tickets from you because of the festival. And, but I think that people will too. So I think that there's no such thing as bad press. And I think if you can spin it and again, if you can come back and show somebody that you're not this person that your Mm -hmm. reputation has been because you fucked up majorly, that's a big win for you and that will help you pay back the people that you owe money to. And I, I, again, I think there's a lot of positive that can come Mm -hmm. from this and you know, I mean, what do you think? Yeah. I think like it's a big opportunity. Um, I think whatever I do next on like a larger scale, I will have a chance and that's a chance. A lot of people in my position probably don't have. And so I'm super grateful for that. And I also realized like, just like from a pure business standpoint, like it's great. And as software becomes like easier to create, getting attention becomes harder and harder. Yeah. And if I truly build something game changing and impactful, there will be the natural attention there. So I have a chance to do something I think most don't. And right. Weirdly grateful for that. Yeah. So what's next for you? I mean, yeah. I know you have pirate going on now, mm-hmm. but are you focusing on content creation, podcast, anything like that? I know you've been doing a lot of big mm-hmm. podcasts. It's all it's all about tech for me. Okay. And I think fire started touching on a theme that I was really interested in, which is how could tech amplify talent and maybe even like guide and impact talent. And like, I think that, you know, the term it's software ate the world over the past 10 years. Now AI is eating, eating software. I think AI is also going to eat entertainment. Yeah. And how can technology become superstars in its own right? It's like, I'm really, really interested in that. And everything I'm doing on the content side is more of just like an experiment. Like, I don't want to be a TikToker. I just like, I haven't figured out how to be a TikToker yet either, yeah. but I want to like build a software that eats TikTokers. Right. So this has all been a journey for me to kind of like get my feet wet and like see how things are done from the content side, because I've always been on the business side. So now it's like, Hey, like, let me live this for a year. Right. And then go back and like rethink my thesis on the software side. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about pirate. Yeah. So like pirate on the surface, it gets back to like the thing that I'm really good at or I think the thing I'm good at is like taking people who are super interesting and bringing them together with people outside of their normal day-to-day life. So what we were doing is taking over a small hotel and we're going to host like various like entrepreneurs, entertainers at this hotel. 
but instead of charging for like a music festival or a concert, we're going to live stream everything and allow fans to interact with the talent in different ways. Nice. Okay. So I saw the zero gravity video. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And was Haley yeah. Bieber on a plane? What was? Yeah. I mean, like the zero gravity was just like such a core part of the experience. And yeah. we'd naturally created these three or four day trips that were just like insane. And we'd start off really nice. Like, you know, take a big jet from like the New York City area, like to the main island of the Bahamas, just like everybody else that like, you know, caliber of, of talent was doing. Right. Then we take everybody off the plane. Now they're comfortable. They had this great like G4 and load them all up onto three or four like super shitty propeller planes from like the 1960s. And they don't know what they're doing? Not really. I okay. mean, like after a while, the word got around, like everybody knew like what was going to go down. Yeah. And we get in these small propeller planes and just like bomb over all the little islands and just like start doing plane tricks. Yeah. And, like, that started the weekend off. So as soon as we landed, everybody's like who wasn't even talking to each other on the g4 because they're only like solving their own shit yeah now everybody's best friends like oh oh my god i can't believe we survived that right and, like broke the ice in such a weird way it's like set the stage for your best like island adventure weekend got it okay yeah so credit to zero gravity for making yeah all the good and all the bad happened too that was cool so when you said you did plane tricks you guys i know you guys did like a drop where yeah. it goes to zero g but you guys do any barrel rolls or anything? Uh, not with most talent. <laughs> okay. All right. But we, I've done some barrel rolls, yes. Got it. Okay. So who who are some of the people that are involved in this? Yeah, I think we did the zero G with like everybody that you saw in the trailer video. Yep. Was was a zero G uh, zero G victim or, or participant. Yeah. And everybody loved it at the end. And it's like that's cool. It yeah. seemed like they were having yeah. the time of their lives. Yeah. I wish we had that footage. So we'd have like a GoPro in the plane. Yeah. Like, one on the wings. Yeah. And. Basically, the, it's pretty simple. You just like put the nose up as high as you can. Yep. It's like cut the engine. So yep. when it falls down like this, everybody's like floating in the plane. So yeah. You can pour like liquor out and like the liquor's floating. And like yeah. we'd be hotboxing the plane. It was like, it was wild. That's awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, so how can people learn more about you and, and where are you putting out the most content? Instagram or? Yeah, this has been mostly been Instagram. Um, done a number of podcasts. I think this is probably going to be the last one until I pay the Bahamas back. Okay. So I kind of feel like this is a cool cutoff point where dipped my toes in the water, had some good, had some bad on the media side. And I think yep. like just really learned about how things are operating and like where I think I can maybe help on a tech standpoint, Yeah, which I think I'm probably better at than being a media personality. Sure. So could take a step back from like the podcast game for a number of months and yeah. hopefully the next one I'm announcing a big check to the Bahamas and some technology we built too. Sweet. Billy, thank you for hosting us here. I of appreciate course. it. And, um, genuinely rooting for you. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that this may end up being the best thing that's ever happened to you. So thank you. Yeah. Let's, round two is uh, in the Bahamas and you guys are invited. So let's do it. Let's get back there and cool. we can do the follow-up episode. Hey, yeah, thank, thank you so thank much. You, Appreciate, Appreciate it, man.